Great, great to see you. Yeah, my name's Chris. I'm on staff here at Riverstone. I'm glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, today, we're going to sit with um, a portion of Scripture that we referenced last week, uh, but didn't read. Um, and I have two hopes of kind of sitting with this Scripture, circling back around to it. Uh, number one, I want to give you a vision um, of a way to engage with people who think differently than you. Um, especially, maybe, when it comes to their beliefs about God, but really in any aspect of life, I think this vision that I think we see in Scripture um, can help us. Um, and the second thing I want to get out of sitting with this Scripture today is that you will see the nature of the promises offered to you um, in the claims of the resurrection of Christ. Uh, not, just that, not just the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, but what does that claim, that death is not the end, do for us here and now? What kind of people should that make us? So I'm going to read large portions of 1 Corinthians 15. Not the whole thing, but large portions. Then we'll come back to key sections. Sound good? Yes. One person. One person sounds good. Okay, awesome. Me and them will read this. All right. <laughs> Let me pray first today, then we'll read. Holy Spirit, we invite um, the peace of God to rest on our hearts now. God, would you speak peace to um, the multitude of distractions that are kind of clamoring at our side, even as we sit here? God, grant us the grace uh, to sit with your scripture, Lord, to allow it to form and mold and influence the way we think and see and live. Holy Spirit, would you bring to life um, scripture that perhaps for some of us is quite dead, if we're honest. Come, Lord, and lead us in the way that leads to life. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm reading um, large portions, but not the entire chapter, and it should be on the screen. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless... You believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. In other words, I didn't make this stuff up. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. He wants you to see this is in Scripture. He's not making this up. And that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. In other words, if you have questions about these claims, there are people that you can verify this with. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Oh, I already, no, 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 I'm good. That's right, seven. Eight. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that's in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed, is raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die. So also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That's what we read about in Isaiah 35. We live now in the section he described as those who belong to Christ. 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest. Listen to the emphasis he's trying to have you wrestle with. I protest, brothers. By my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's a lot of beautiful imagery and language here about the nature of resurrection bodies that follows after this, but we're going to pick it up in 47. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, all that to say, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Can I just say to you, the church has a history of public scripture readings in which they would gather and simply read large portions of scripture. I could get into that. The first thing I want you to note here about this passage is Paul is dealing with people of faith, y'all. He's writing to Christians. These are Corinthian Christians who are struggling with the idea of resurrection. So I'm dovetailing a little bit with last week. We know from other places in scripture that there are groups of Jews who believed in resurrection and there are groups of Jews who did not. Pharisees believed in resurrection. If you subscribe to the Pharisaical theology, you believed in resurrection. Sadducees did not. If you were of their camp, you didn't believe in that kind of nonsense. But even the Pharisees, right, would have struggled with resurrection in the middle of human history. See, they, they thought resurrection would happen at the end. Sure, at the end, God will resurrect his saints, his holy ones. It's why in John 11, when Lazarus dies and Jesus says he'll rise again, Mary says, well, I know he'll rise again at the end at the resurrection on the last day. So the claim that Jesus rose from the dead in the middle of history would, would have been a pill to swallow even if they did think resurrection was possible because they thought if it did happen, it would happen on the last day, right? When God gathers all the, or, you know, uh, abolishes all other kingdoms and establishes his own in the earth, right? But the point is what Paul is doing here is talking in a climate where people, listen, <laughs> where people even in the church believed drastically different things about the world, whether religiously, here it's religiously, but we know that even in the church, you can't even get two people in the same room without disagreeing in some form or fashion. Are we chatting? Right, me and my wife in the kitchen, you're going to have plenty of differing opinions about the nature of reality. <laughs> Sound familiar, right? And Paul is trying to point something out, right? He's trying to point something out to all of us. He's trying to point out that resurrection is a big deal. So what is the first thing that he, what's the first thing he does to remind them that this is a big deal? Well, he reminds them of the gospel, right? He says, I remind you of the gospel, which I preached to you, which I received, in which you stand, by which you are saved. And his point is, as he's kind of recounting the gospel, pointing to scripture has said this, scripture has said this, right? It mar he brings it up to a point that, hey, listen, if you don't believe that the dead can be raised again, this is kind of a central deal that makes you a Christian. It's kind of like a part of saving faith, right? It's what theologians would call salvific. So you can always leave it to theologians to make up words we don't need, right? Word, make up a word for everything. They call this salvific, right? Well, what that means, and what Paul is trying to say, is this idea that the dead will be, can be raised, Jesus has been raised, that you will be raised, is a non-negotiable point if you're gonna call yourself a Christian. He says, Christ died for sins in accordance with scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scripture. So pause one second. Let me give you some more boring theological terms right now. Um, terms, however, that I find a vast amount of liberation in when it comes to doing life with other Christians, especially Christians who think differently than me. Can I just tell you something? even in the church. We need to assimilate this, guys. This is a really big thing. Even in the church, you will find, surprise, surprise, 
people who do not agree with you on every topic under the sun. My question for you is, are you of the sort that can handle that? Or are you of the sort of which your idea of cookie-cutter Christianity must rigidly adhere to the form that you have in your mind, and if not on any dot or whatever, you're like, no, out, no, you're not in, right? Do you, this is tricky. You guys are like, are you a heretic, Chris? What are you talking about? Stay with me. I want to give you some theological terms that could really help you in small group, okay? Really help you in talking with other Christians that may think differently about you on certain issues. Guys, I want you to understand biblical theology in this way. There are categories in which we can call the main and the plain, a category in which we can say our primary truths. There is a category of that, okay? These, uh, in other words, there are ideas, truths, and claims that are indisputable within the whole counsel of Scripture. There's no ambiguity. There's no way to refute or deny from a simple, thoughtful reading of Scripture that the authors meant to communicate this idea to the reader. Or you could say it this way in a much less wordy way. I'm sorry, I can get real wordy. There are truths repeated so many times in Scripture that to deny them would be to deny Scripture. Those truths we call primary. They are primary. They, are, they have supremacy and consistency throughout the entirety of Scripture and in no way refute or negate that central idea. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. So this is Paul saying, in accordance with Scripture. Example. He is pointing at something that he's saying over and over and over again. Scripture says this. Not making this up. You can find this all through. So let me give you an example of a primary truth in Christian theology. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. When we look at him, he said, you see God most clearly. Now, it's very hard to deny this if you read the whole Gospels, right? Although people have tried to deny the deity of Jesus and still do to this day, right? But they, to, in order to deny that, you have to ignore vast swaths of Scripture, primarily Jesus' teachings himself. In John 14, 9, he says, whoever's seen me, seen the Father. That's an audacious claim. So you have to ignore certain things to be able to say, Jesus wasn't God, right? It's said so many times. It's pointed at so many times. Old Testament, New Testament, all pointing to this reality, right? You can't deny it without ignoring massive swaths of Scripture. Jesus died for your sins. That's a biblical primary truth that is repeated so often that to deny it would be to deny Scripture. Are we chatting? You with me? Okay, good. And then, of course, what we read today, that Jesus rose from the dead, Right? that he rose from the grave, that he has power over sin and death, and he extends that power to us. It's repeated over and over and over via the power of the Holy Spirit, right? It's a primary truth. That to believe that makes you a Christian. To not believe that, you, would, you are then deviating from what is main and plain in Christian theology. There are examples of that all throughout the, the, the scriptures, okay? There are also, uh, the, I'm sorry, these, where I said primary truths, are examples of biblical truths that... Almost no matter what church you walk into, Catholic, Orthodox, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Charismatic, would all say to those truths, yes and amen, that's what we believe, 
These are salvific in nature. And if you don't believe these, I'm not sure if you're a Christian. They are primary. They are the flag which flies over the true church throughout all of Christian history and that makes them distinctly Christian as opposed to other religions. Got it? Sounds good. Thank you. Okay, then there are in Scripture what we can call secondary issues. Now, that does not mean they don't matter. It doesn't mean they don't matter. It's just that you can take one of these issues and find ample and convincing evidence of Scripture to back both arguments. Okay? So you can find opposing ideas in Scripture that both seemingly say completely opposing things. All right, let me give you an example of this. Calvinism and Arminianism. Or you might know it as predestination and free will. Okay? You can find ample scripture and and perfect, seemingly uh, perfect argument for both of those positions, right? You guys, am I talking here? Sort of, like sort of, you're sort of talking, sort of like saying things that don't make sense to you. You can find all sorts of scripture that can support either of those arguments, okay? This is another one. Egalitarian, don't you love all these dumb theology words? Egalitarian versus complementarian. What does that mean? Well, it's basically gender roles, okay? Women in ministry. You can find ample scripture on both sides that you can then take and say, no, you can't do that, or yes, you can do that, right? Guys should be in charge, or no, there's no, there's no hierarchy, it's equal. Find both scriptures that say both things, guys. I'm just telling you, the Bible's not a simple book. It's complex. There's nuance. You don't have the thoughtfulness to sit with it. Anyway, okay, so here's my... Here's my other personal faith, pre-trib, post-trib, all right? You pre-trib, you post-trib, right? Um, and it's my personal faith because, okay, that's like the rapture, right? Is, is it going to happen before the tribulation? It's going to have to happen after the tribulation, right? And it's my favorite because it is the most elusive, and it always boggles my mind when someone is super confident about one or the other of those things, right? And there are some dudes that talk about that in a way that I would say, man, I think you know more than God when it comes to this, right? Like, you are super smart. Which, by the way, is often all people are trying to prove by taking really dogmatic stances on secondary issues. I'm smarter than you. I've thought this out more than you. I've leveled up because I believe rightly on this issue. Can I just tell you something real quick? For many religious people, it's issues like this, secondary issues, that often replace the gospel when it comes to what they actually believe brings them value and significance as Christians. What gives you value as a Christian? Huh? Let me ask you a question. How come I get to stand up here and preach the word? <laughs> Some smart Alec Ramar. I should have I should, I should, I should never open up things like that. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Is it because I am morally superior to you that I get to stand up here and preach the word? Yeah. <laughs> Let me. Let me explain something about rhetorical questions real quick before we move on. Let me ask a question. I just want to press a little further because there's stuff happening in the world. <laughs> I'm not going to be more specific than that. Um, 
let's just pretend for a moment that I'm not perfect. Let's just pretend I have a massive moral collapse. Does that negate the truths that I am speaking to you right now? Are you sure? What authority do I stand on? My own? Well, if I'm saying my own junk, then yeah. But if I'm reading this, or sticking to this, then I am not speaking on my own authority. And therefore, the truth of the gospel does not rest on my ability or my authenticity in it, y'all. This is complex. This is not simple. I can't tell you how many people have walked away from the Christian faith because their hero morally collapsed. Can I just say to you, the authenticity and the weight of scripture does not rest on men. Amen. Rest on God, man. Men make crummy gods. That is not in my notes. Let's get back to it. <laughs> what gives you value as a Christian? The fact that you have all the right beliefs? Or does what give you value as a Christian the act of God in Jesus Christ, Amen. forgiving and redeeming? Let me read you a very confrontational quote by Timothy Keller in Counterfeit Gods. An idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. Idolatry functions widely inside religious communities when doctrinal truth is elevated to the position of a false god. This occurs when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine, and I'm speaking of this really when secondary issues, right? the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God himself and his grace. It is a subtle but deadly mistake. The sign that you have slipped into this form of self-justification is that you become what the book of Proverbs calls a scoffer. Scoffers always show contempt and disdain for opponents rather than graciousness. This is a sign that they do not see themselves as sinners saved by grace. Instead, they trust in the rightness of their views, and this makes them feel superior. You can take secondary issues and be convinced it is your scriptural rightness that gives you value. And when you do, Keller says you've made it into an idol. So, what does that mean for us? Well, there are people that I love and respect and admire, and listen to, and learn from, and want to hear their opinion, right, who I disagree with on secondary issues, right? I, I see, I love them, I want to hear what they say, but they've drawn a hard line in a place where I feel like, I don't even, I don't think you can, I don't think you can draw a hard line there. You have a lot of confidence there, I'm happy for you, that's great, I can't have that kind of confidence, but she's, I respect you, and I can tell from the fruit of your life, you know and love God, and I believe that we will one day spend eternity enjoying and delighting in the glories of Christ and his unending love for us together in his kingdom, and yet we disagree on certain issues. Is everyone with me? This can and should do a lot for you when it comes to loving and engaging with people, Christian or not, who think differently than you about things, right? Here, Paul is dealing with a primary issue, the resurrection, 
not only of Jesus, but of all Christians after him. It is essential. It is integral to the faith. And that's why he talks about it in the way he does. But I want you to see how he's approaching the disagreement via the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 13, I'm going to read this little section. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. goes on. And so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you know what he's doing, right? He's clearly dealing, I'll, I'll get there. He's clearly dealing with people struggle to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. All right, that's clear from the context, right? And how is he dealing with that? Is he just shutting them down and saying, that's nonsense? No. You know what he's doing? He's inviting them and you and me to walk through a thought experiment. Do you know what a thought experiment is? It's when you take a claim and you just suppose it true. You say, let's, okay. So you, sit, you think this, which by the way, most modern people do, whether you want to admit it or not. You, I mean, we struggle with the idea of resurrection of the dead, right? right? Uh, and he says, okay, well, let's, let's take that. Let's walk, let's walk that out. Let's, let's, say, let's say that's true. If this is true, if the dead are not raised, then let's apply that truth to all these other claims and let's just walk, logically walk that thing. He's inviting us to a robust and intelligent thought experiment, right? Here's the premise. It's impossible for the dead to be raised. All right, well, let's think about it. Let's say that's universally true in all places and in all times, right? The dead do not come back to life. Go with it. Death is final. He says, well, if death is final, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your pre your, my preaching's nonsense, right? It's in vain. Your faith is useless, and it makes us misrepresenting God, right? He's speaking so emphatically here because it is an essential issue. The whole thing rests on it, but there's wisdom in how he's doing it, right? And he knows the difference between primary and secondary issues. Even though this is a primary issue, he has the patience to sit with the opposing view and think through it, Right? Let's think through that idea. Let's see how it compares to other scripture. And then you can make an educated decision with a clear understanding of what Jesus claimed for himself and what scripture says. See, many of us do not have the patience or the security to do, with, do this with people who disagree with us. If someone disagrees with you, especially on a primary issue, what is your tendency, right? It's a small group. Someone just starts throwing heresy and you want to be like, shh. Right? Don't say that. We don't believe that. Everyone gets freaked out, right? <gasps> right? I mean, what if you just said, well, okay, let's think about that. Let's, let's just walk that through. How, does that, how would that pan out? Let's compare it with Scripture. Is there any Scripture to defend that? Can we defend that statement? Let's look together. And then we can all walk away from this knowing what Scripture says and not having to indoctrinate or try to force fit, right? Are we chatting? What often, I mean, first of all, when we see a difference as an opinion, a difference of opinion as a threat, right? How fragile a universe is that? Like if, if, we, if you can't handle someone's difference of opinion, right? I mean, what our discomfort often reveals is that we really think Jesus is more like Tinkerbell than the Ancient of Days. And if everyone all together doesn't clap and believe, then he ceases to be, right? Can I, can I assure you that Jesus can handle not only your doubts, but the questions of the world? Can I assure you that Jesus not only can handle your doubts and your questions, but he can handle your slander and your rage? 
Not only can he handle the slander and rage of the world, he can handle your skepticism and even your disbelief. Not only can he handle that, he can handle your sins, the full weight of them. Who are we dealing with? (laughs) Right? If he can handle the nails and the beatings and the cross and death itself and walk out the other side of victory, I think he's strong enough to handle your questions and skepticism. Okay? It's us who often lack the security and confidence, not him. Right? So often today, whether concerning Jesus you know, or other things, cultural, political, right, we often have no patience to sit with an opposing view, nor any desire to listen and try to understand why this person may think differently than you. And how dare they think differently than you in the first place, right? I'm uncomfortable and I'm triggered, by the way, right? right? So uh, I don't know if you pick this up here about like how we do things here. We don't take hard stances on secondary issues. That might, that might frustrate you. But the flag we're going to fly The main identifying belief that we will rally around will never be a secondary issue, right? Pre-trip, post-trip, pre-destined, right, right? And if you need that, there's plenty of guys that are willing to draw hard lines there. But in my opinion, they're conflating their own value and and their rightness with certain certain theology. As long as God gives me a place behind this pulpit, I'm going to declare the simplicity of the gospel in Jesus, that in Jesus and Jesus alone, we have life. And that that and that alone will be the, fa- the flag that we fly, right? And so I'm, I just got an, out of a meeting a while ago with my small group leaders, and I'm so profoundly thankful for them. And one of the larger things that we talked about is the dynamic of knowing the difference between primary and secondary issues and having the patience to walk through biblical ideas, presenting both sides of an argument and trusting that God will, in his own time, lead all to the knowledge of the truth, right? Which means when someone comes out the gate swinging heresy, we don't hush them up in a desperate frantic, but rather say, okay, let's dig into it. Let's sit with it. Let's think about it, right? Let's find scriptures. What does it say about it? What's the scripture say? Let's go to those ideas. And my goal is that our small group and our, that here and that in our small group, the role is not to indoctrinate you into thinking the way we think, especially on secondary issues, but rather to help you understand the biblical proofs for this or that idea and come to your own conclusions on the evidence, knowing that there are primary issues that may break your faith, right? But at the end of the day, you have to be the one to decide the road you walk on, right? And I think our job is to help you see the road that you are on, whether or not it may be a scriptural road or not. Does that make sense? Okay. There's the approach. So now let's end with just a few thoughts um, on this statement right here. Because it's, a, it's an um, alienating statement, perhaps. This statement in 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, why would he... Is anyone else like, you're like, huh? why would you say that? I mean, don't we have hope in this life? Yeah. Jesus said, eternal life to know God. Right? And Jesus, who he sent, that starts here, right? We get a deposit of the life to come, Holy Spirit, right? Whose real practical fruits manifest itself in our lives here and now. We experience his love, joy, peace, patience, God. All that stuff is here. I mean, isn't it good, right? We like that stuff. Yeah, we have great hope in this life. But you see, the context in which Paul is saying this is where followers of Jesus were being fed to lions and in constant danger. So he says, why are we in danger every hour? 
He said, I protest, right? What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. See, he was living in a reality in which it was not trendy to be a Christian, but rather was in constant danger for holding to his claims about Jesus. And he's saying, I'd be an idiot if I endured all the stuff we're having to endure if there's no resurrection. Most to be pitied, that's what he says. See, today, we can be hushed into a kind of spiritual slumber by the tiny blip of history in which we live where we enjoy freedom of religion. And his words seem to us alien. We're like, huh, it's awesome being a Christian. But on the pages of history, can I? His situation is the norm, y'all. On the pages of history, his situation is the norm, not ours. And if you're like, well, wait a second, what about like the popes and the Roman church throughout the ages? Weren't they like oppressing everyone who wasn't a Christian? Well, yeah, there was some of that, but guess who they were burning at the stake with more aggressiveness? Anyone who said the Bible should be read by common people. Read the Reformation. Anyone who said the true church isn't established by the words of popes, but by the word of God was hunted down and killed. 1555, Hugh Latimer was burned at the stake by guess who? The Catholic religious leaders. Do you know why? He said that there was no biblical evidence of transubstantiation, <laughs> which is awesome, right? You guys know that? Which is the idea that bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ when you take them, among other Protestant beliefs. Latimer was famously, um, Latimer famously said to Nicholas Ridley, who they were both burned alive at the stake for holding to biblical Christianity. <laughs> by the church, what? That's correct. They were burned alive at the stake for holding to biblical Christianity by the church, okay? He said to Nicholas Ridley, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. So the true church has almost without exception been persecuted in history and the disciples were no exception, y'all. Well, all of them murdered, killed, except for their claims about Jesus, right? Which is one, someone reminded me last week, one of the more compelling arguments that the resurrection actually happened. Who would die for a lie they made up, right? Like when the fires get lit and the blades come out, at that point, you'd think the disciples would say, okay, 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 we made this up. None of them did. None of them did. All right? Torches came out. Guillotines came out. They said, it's true. I won't say it's not. And lost the most precious thing they had, their very lives. Because they would not refuse the truth. of what They were killed. And that's the context, right, of Paul as he argues further for the resurrection. He says, listen, we'd be insane to suffer the way we do as Christians if there's no life after death. If there's no resurrection, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, it's not worth persevering under adversity and difficulty with strength and integrity and confidence if this is all we have, right? Or you could say this way, why suffer well? Why go without? So other, why sacrifice? Why resist temptation, right? And he points to the future hope of God's kingdom, and he says, that's why. 
That's why it's worth it. It's not in vain. And he does the whole thing, right? The, from 52 to 58, he's pointing to that day, that, that moment, that twinkling of an eye. And he's saying, therefore, my beloved brothers, right? Be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. He would say in other places that no amount of suffering will be comparable to the glory that is revealed to us on that day. Why be steadfast? Why live a life of integrity? Why suffer well? Because he says, we don't, we, we don't die when we die. We live on. Death is not the end, right? How we endure the trial you may find yourself in right now matters, not just for this life, but for eternity. So I don't know what season of difficulty you find yourself in presently, right? I don't know where in your heart and life the heat is being turned up on you, but if you're a Christian, you have an eternally compelling and historical reason to suffer with strength and integrity, right? As a Christian, you don't get a free pass out of suffering. That's not on the table. What you do get is a friend closer than a brother, right? Who says he is with you in the suffering. And it's not just his loyalty that he offers to us, but his power as well. No other religious figure on the stage of humanity claimed to overcome death, right? But in the New Testament, the claim isn't just that he overcame death, but that he shares with us the victory with which, with which he wrought on the cross. That he's generous in his victory, right? That's Jesus. And according to Romans 8, the invitation on the table is that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that's offered to you right now in this life through his spirit. And if we will say yes to his spirit, then we can walk in the same kind of strength and power and fidelity we see in Jesus, right? Even in the face of great suffering and the foundational to this idea of suffering well, enduring well, right? Ability to hold up even unto death is the truth that because of Jesus, death is not the end. Let's stand and pray.